Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambu Dasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambu Dasa Homage to the Blessed Noble and Perfectly Enlightened One Namo沙丹陀,苏谢多耶,哈利,沙丹陀,苏谢多耶,哈利,沙丹陀,苏谢多耶,哈利,沙丹陀,苏谢多耶,哈利,沙丹陀,苏谢多耶,哈利,沙
Please turn in your text to page 94 and 95. 94 and 95. We're on the third stanza, third paragraph. And we uh, first recite the Chinese, and then we do the English, and then we go back and try to uh, put some, some chanting tones, put some music to it, because this... The verses, this is the verse section. The verses for sure were chanted with the melody. So we're trying to interpret it for 21st century here in the West. So we'll do it again with a tone. Okay, the third stanza in Chinese. Wei shi zhong shang gu. Er xing zhong zhong shi. Wang Wei Ji Zhen Bao Nai Zhi Xiang Ma Che Next next uh, stanza down below To Mu Yi Shou Zu Nai Zhi Shen Xue Rou Yi Che Jie Neng She Xin de wu you hui. Okay, let's let's try the uh, let's try some chanting tones for this. Wei shi zhong sheng gu. Shi zhong sheng gu. Er xing zhong zhong shi. Er xing zhong zhong shi. Wang Wei Ji Zhen Bao Okay, over on the third paragraph, for the sake of these living beings, I will pro- practice generosity in every form. I will give up my throne, my jewels and treasures, my elephants, horses and cars, my head, eyes, hands and feet, including my body, blood and flesh. Each and everything I can renounce. Their minds have no worries and regrets. Okay. 
For the sake of these living beings, for the sake of these living beings, I will practice generosity in every form. I will practice generosity in every form. I will give up my throne, my jewels and treasures. I will give up my throne, my jewels and treasures, my elephants, horses and cars. My elephants, horses and cars. My head, eyes, hands and feet. My head, eyes, hands and feet, including my body, blood and flesh. Including my body, blood and flesh. Each and everything I can renounce. Each and everything I can renounce. Their minds have no worries and regrets. Their minds have no worries and regrets. It sure sounds different when you put some sustained melodic steps in there. Okay, we're in a text called the Flower Adornment. This is called the Flower Ornament sometimes, Flower Garland Sutra. It's a text spoken by the Buddha right upon his awakening. The tradition tells us that before the Buddha left the Bodhi tree, before he left the the place where he realized Buddhahood, he spoke this text. This was what he put into the air first because it was what he saw through his newly opened wisdom eyes. Uh, they call this text milk right from the cow. Uh, in a world, in an Indian world where cows are beloved and never harmed, much less eaten, um, to say that this is the, the raw milk is significant. The other end of what you do with milk in the Indian world is called ghee, ghee, G-H-E-E. And ghee is, they say, the, the sublime flavor. It's, it's butter that's been completely uh, reduced of all dross, refined butter. And that would be, when you take the analogy across, that's the Lotus Sutra. So the Lotus Sutra is the most refined text. It tells you about Buddhahood. And the Avatamsaka over here is full of everything. It's got all the stuff still left in it. It hasn't been pasteurized, homogenized, or, or uh, processed in any way. So this is our text. And if you had to say, what is it about? It's about the bodhisattva. This uh, expression of humanity called the bodhisattva, the awakened being. Somebody who is selfless. Somebody who lives to benefit others. And this is the text. This is how, from start to finish, it's about the Bodhisattva, how one first makes that resolve in your heart and how you carry it forward into practice and how you, uh, the verb is to walk, how you walk the Bodhisattva path to its ultimate point. That's our text. So we're in a section. It's, uh, we picked out one chapter to, to lecture on because this text is really, really long. And if we, our teacher, Master Shuenhua, whose image is here, uh, lectured on this text every single night consecutively, took him nine years to finish it. And that's every single night, going step by step through it. So we, we do it once a week. And um, 
have to pick carefully which, which chapter we, we lecture on or else we would probably be doing this for, for uh, more than nine years, for sure. Nine times seven, uh, given just once a week. So we're, we picked out a text called The Ten Grounds, Shi Di Pin in Chinese, Dashabumi in, in Sanskrit. This is the Ten Grounds of the Bodhisattva Path, and it's pretty much towards the end of the path. This is not a beginner's text, but it, it's progressive and sequential, and our challenge is to make it come alive, to bring it to life, and to make it make sense, which is not just a challenge, it's a delight. It's, it's joyful to um, try it on, to put the text into your eyes and into your heart and into your mouth and, and uh, let these ancient words uh, take form and take shape. So, this is the first of the ten grounds. The ten grounds is ten parts, each ground being one part. We're in the first of the ten, and it's called the ground of happiness. That's the name of this stage, the Bodhisattva's ground or stage of happiness. And it takes us how it takes us through the the um, preparation of a Bodhisattva for happiness and how he or she uh, puts it into practice in a variety of situations. It talks about fear and fearlessness, fear and courage, and it talks about probably more than any other single aspect of happiness. It talks about giving, generosity and giving. There's just for those of you who are keeping track, if you're interested in in uh, this particular sutra or the Bodhisattva path, there's a pattern that runs through it over and over again. And that pattern is a series of practices called paramitas. P-A-R-A-M-I-T-A. The paramitas are an underlying structure of the whole Bodhisattva path of this whole sutra and particularly this chapter. And the paramitas, the first of the paramitas is giving. Paramita is a Sanskrit word which means two things. It means perfection, meaning something taken to its ultimate expression, done as good as it gets. A param- when you say paramita, it means it's uh, per- perfect. There's nothing more to add. Can't improve it in any way. And the other meaning of paramita is they say in Chinese, Tao Bi An, which means goes over to the other shore, crosses over, goes from here across something to there. When you get to the other side, it's paramita, reaches the other shore. Param is to go across. So paramita can mean ways to get across, the things that take you across. The first of those is giving. So the structure of the paramitas, and there are sometimes there are six of them, sometimes there are ten, depending on how you how you use them. But those six or ten form the underlying structure of this text. So why am I telling you this? Some people are interested in the kind of the the uh, meta aspects, the the descriptive 
aspects along with the content we want to know what it's made of what does it look like how is it built people who look at a building and see the rebar and the concrete would be interested in knowing about the paramitas so the paramitas start with giving and the bodhisattva's first ground is called the ground of happiness what's it about it's about giving so connection giving happiness Generosity, happiness. What's our first verse? It says, Wei shi zhong shang gu, er xing zhong zhong shi, wang wei ji zhen bao, nai zhi xiang ma che, tou mu yu shou zu, nai zhi shen xie rou, yi qie jie neng she, xin de wu you hui. For the sake of these living beings, I'll practice generosity in every form. I'll give up. My throne, jewels, treasures, elephants, horses, and cars, head, eyes, hands, and feet, body, blood, and flesh, I can renounce everything, says the Bodhisattva. Their minds have no worries and regrets. So here's a, um, this is a statement. This is a first-person statement from a Bodhisattva on the first ground of the ten grounds. And he's telling us, or she is telling us, what they are willing to do. It's all about giving. And this is the first stage of happiness. And it lists the kind of things that a bodhisattva is willing to... There are two, two verbs. The first is shi, practice many kinds of shi, many kinds of giving. Then down below it says, I can renounce. So there's one giving over, like level, horizontal, giving from equal to equal. Then there's renunciation, which is an inner, a personal kind of giving. Um, this particular practice is everywhere in the Buddha Dharma, in the Buddha's teaching. Um, of the paramitas, the bodhisattva's practices, it's the first thing you do. And I, I made a list of giving in Buddhism. I actually wrote it up at one point because it's so fundamental to the Buddha's description of how you, how somebody uh, makes progress along the spiritual path. You start by giving. And once you poke into it, what you discover, there's all kinds of giving. There's lots of different ways to give that show up in these texts as the Buddha talked about the spiritual path. For example... Um, there's a kind of giving that happens every single day in the life of a monastic. And so, for example, monks, me, for example, here being uh, one monk, to, to pass a single day as a monastic in the Buddha's Sangha, you get given to. You're the receiver of generosity as a monk or a nun. And it's just part of the day. I've told this story a lot, so mm, bear with me. I'll tell you again about my experience of going on alms rounds in Thailand. This is not a practice that monks in, in the Mahayana, in the Chinese Buddhist tradition that is represented here, or the Vietnamese tradition, or 
the Japanese tradition or the Korean tradition except on certain occasions. But in the Chinese tradition, monks didn't go on alms rounds. They were mostly out in the mountains. And there was nobody out there with a kitchen who was going to provide them food. So you don't take your bowl and go door to door um, when all you have are squirrels and bears and birds. But in Thailand, in Burma, in Cambodia, in Laos, in Sri Lanka, and in India, back when, back in the day, monks did. They would take their bowls, and I always want to make a footnote here. Please, if you're describing this ever, suppose you have an opportunity to talk about Buddhist practice, strike the word begging bowl. Okay, uh, I was reading an article on CNN yesterday. CNN wrote up an article about Buddhist practice and they were talking about monks with their begging bowls. And I thought, man, that is so deeply in the culture and it's so wrong. Monks don't beg. Never did. Can't. Don't do it. In order to beg, you have to say, give me or I want or please. When monks go on alms rounds, they can't talk. There's no words. Furthermore, they don't make eye contact. Furthermore, no monk has ever said, I want. Right? It's just there's an I there and there's desire. And those are both obstacles to the path. So to call this begging is, mm, it puts an idea, especially in the West, where beggars are considered mm, kind of like tax collectors, beggars, mm, Wall Street bankers, you know, pariahs in society, people who we would just as soon kind of keep at a distance. And there's no, there's nothing noble about beggars, where beggars are considered solicitors or worse. Give me. And the immediate answer is, hey, buddy, get a job, right? Get a job. Um, when I was on a pilgrimage outdoors, I heard that over and over and over every single day. Hey, get up from there. What's wrong? Go to work. I am working. So monks don't beg. So footnote, please scratch begging bowl. What you can substitute is alms, A-L-M-S, alms, meaning things happily offered, supports or gifts, right? The way I understand it and the way I saw it happen in Thailand changed my thinking about it forever. Um, here's the way the Thai monks explain it. Let me give you the picture first. And for, if you've heard it before, I, I apologize for repeating, but it's such a beautiful image that I think maybe there's no harm. The, the monks get ready before dawn. They're up, of course, early meditating and chanting. The sun has not yet risen. This is true in downtown Bangkok as it is out in the countryside. Take off their shoes, they're barefoot, <clears throat> and get their bowls ready. And the bowls are very formal, the way you handle a bowl. And they undo the, the stays and get the top ready, and the bowl is clean. The bowls are big, they're like, like that, they're big bowls. You know, they hold a lot. And they get ready uh, in order. So seniors, that would be the abbot or the senior monk, one junior to him, junior, 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 on down to the, to the novices. And everybody's looking their best. 
they're trim and ready and they start out walking. And it depends how near or how far the closest village is or where they want to go determines how far they walk. In the experience that I had, um, we were out in central Thailand near a place called Khaoyai, which is a national park. And we were in a mountain monastery that was just barely shelter for against the wind and little kutis, little huts where the monks stayed individually with a kitchen that was just a, a, a lean-to over some counters. It was designed to be minimal, really minimal. We set out and the nearest village was a mile away. So we walked over farmers' trails, paddy fields on all sides. Take one step wrong and you're into the, the water that's growing the rice. And lots of pebbles, and my feet were very tender. Those monks had Teflon on the bottoms of their feet. They didn't feel any of the rocks. And I felt every single one of them. And because I'm a senior monk, I've been in robes over 30 years, so I was at the front of the line, and all the poor, sad Thai monks behind me were going, <coughs> he's an American, it's okay, let him, Bante could um, let him go, you know. They, they couldn't push me faster. And I'm going oh, 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 you know, over these pebbles and rock. So we come to the edge of the village. The sun is just barely arising. And the dogs see the monks first. And the dogs, of course, let everybody know that the monks are here. And then the families shush the dogs. And some of the families are waiting already by the side of the road. And it's frequently, it's the mom. Not always. Sometimes it's the dad. Sometimes it's both, and they will get all the kids, including babies as young as six months or a year. They'll be standing there. The monks come by and file and stop, and the first monk in line will stop right beside the happy family that is standing there. And the energy of this exchange is what touched me the most. There is genuine joy in the giving and the givers are there expectantly, usually with a silver bowl that they keep especially for this, this moment. And the monk stops and the, the donor, the, the mom or the dad, or sometimes they put the paddle in the baby's hand, will reach in and get some rice. And the monk lifts his bowl lid, eyes straight ahead, doesn't say, good morning, how are you? I hope you give me some of the best rice. You, know. <laughs> you, don't, you just lift your bowl and they put some in close the bowl, and you go forward, the next monk behind you comes up, they do the same until everybody has got some. And they, they look at the monks, they know how many and they, how much rice they have and they get it ready. Sometimes it's vegetables and sometimes it's uh, fruit or something. But the, the sangha goes by, everyone gets the same and they are absolutely forbidden from touching money ever. There's no money. There's no words that exchange. Nobody touches hands. It's considered bad form to bump, to bump hands or to, to step on anybody or to make contact. And that's the exchange. That's it. The dana, their dana is the word for giving. Dana paramita, the perfection of giving. The donors who offer dana say any day that you can make an offering to these clean-looking healthy-looking 
monastic people is a day that had a good beginning. Any day that starts by making offerings to the monks is a day that began well, they say. And it's very lovely. It's very refined and elegant. And it's been going on for thousands of years, just like that. And you can see the moms and dads are preparing the kids. The kids had been making offerings to the monks from their earliest memories. Before they were one years old, the kids had been, you know, is this it? Doing it right? You know, putting food in the monks' bowls. And what do the monks do? The monks, silently in line, go back to the monastery. And if, now, if you are a solitary monastic living out in the woods um, or on a pilgrimage or something, you, you go by yourself. And the lay people will offer to you. Usually the monks are in groups, so they, they come through. They go back to the monastery, take their bowls, dump them out, they separate the rice from the vegetables, from the fruit, and uh, they maybe reheat, re-steam the rice and, and get it ready, put it on trays. The monks have gone in, washed their feet, sat down in rows in, in order, according to their seniority, and the food is brought in. They chant, they do their, the blessing of the food, and the transference of the merit. Sometimes the lay people will follow. If they're, maybe it's not harvest, the harvest is over and they're free for a, a month or so. And they'll come to the monastery to, to hear the chanting and also to eat the leftovers. And so the monks take exactly what they want and enjoy their lunch. Sometimes they speak Dharma. They give back Dharma in exchange as their share in the giving. And then the food goes down and the novices get the leftovers and then the temple boys, of which there's always a bunch, get the leftovers and then the dogs and the animals get what's left over from the temple boys. So it's a very um, efficient, um, sustainable way of providing strength for the spiritual life. Where's the begging? None. So, point being, let's remove that idea of begging bowls. All right? It's not. It's called alms bowls. Here's what the monks said. They said, this, if anybody asks them, are you going out begging for food today? They say, no, we never have. In the Buddha's Sangha, which has been on the planet for 2,550 years, monks never beg. Here's what we do. We make ourselves available should you care to practice generosity. And when you say it that way, it's on the donor. The monks are okay. A lot, a little, none, fine. I'm available if you would like to cultivate the practice of generosity. If you would like to, we say, plant good roots with the Sangha or the Buddha Dharma Sangha, the triple jewel, here I am. So the monks are offering service to the lay people. Um, that's the way it goes. And they stop eating at noon. So they eat breakfast and then again at, at noon. But they stop at noon. So there's usually two meals in the Theravada Sangha. In the Sangha, the city of 10,000 Buddhas, we do away with the breakfast part too. We eat once a day. So the monks eat very low on the food chain. Whatever people cook and offer and put in their bowls, is what 
they eat. But look at it this way. My experience of that exchange was very joyful. It was very beautiful to see the happiness in the face of the families who are where we were. They're all farmers. This is, all, this is a farming village. And they work really, really hard all day. You can see the grandma and the grandpa come out and they're all bent over at 40 plus there because they've been working so hard their whole lives. But the contact with the Sangha every day puts them in touch with literature, puts them in touch with the Buddha, puts them in touch with cultivation, with blessings, with happiness. They connect with the idea that by supporting the spiritual lifestyle of a mendicant, they're planting, the, the, the phrase they use is they're planting blessings. Their life is going to get happy because selflessly, generously, they've made it possible for somebody else to meditate, to follow the Buddha's path, to live a pure lifestyle, to say to live the holy life. So it's a really lovely exchange and very happy. Um, the senior monks who I, I was with who were very familiar with the Thai village and the way of this process actually did say hello. They, they said good morning because they knew the villagers and they knew who had gone to Bangkok to college and who was pregnant and who had uh, had an accident with the, the water buffalo and they knew all the stories, you know, and they, so they did make contact because they're, it's a very symbiotic, close relationship. So, that's this amazing experience that I had. My question to you is, could it happen here in Berkeley? Right? Now, as a monk from the Chinese tradition, my bowl is about this big. So, if you hit me with a bag of Fritos, that's it. That's lunch. <laughs> Whatever. Um, now, to tell you the truth, there are some details, which is the, the lay people are very generous, in my experience, in Thailand, and I'm sure it's true all over the Theravada countries. Behind the line of monks, there were laymen who live in and around the monastery, and they stood there with big plastic woven laundry baskets. Because often, and I, I had this experience, your bowl fills up depending on the size of the village. We went through two villages. It took about 30 minutes to go all the way through both. And my bowl filled up twice. And as soon as I did, there was a smiling, friendly layman standing there with a, with a basket for the things like the apples and the, the Cheetos and the, the uh, mm, other things that were offered, including floppy disks and uh, USB thumb drives and boxes of retractable ballpoint pens and stuff. So I took those out and put them in the basket and he took them to the truck that was following. So there are ways to cope with too much offerings, too much generosity for the day that you can't carry. So myself as a monk uh, in the Chinese tradition, we traditionally don't go on alms rounds. Um, but Master Xuanhua being... Uh, very adaptable and very wise and expedient said that 
the Buddha Dharma in the West needs to put itself back on its original foundations um, to try to cut through a lot of the cultural baggage that has become part of every tradition. Vietnamese Buddhism has its own way. Japanese Buddhism has its own way. American Buddhism hasn't developed its own way yet. What a good idea to let it develop on practices that were part of the original Buddhist Sangha, including going for alms rounds. So the Theravada monks in America, Ajahn Amaro, Ajahn Pasano, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, and, and the monks from Ajahn Chah's tradition have already done it. They've broken the ice, you might say. Every Thursday, or is it maybe two Thursdays out of the month, if you're in Ukiah in the morning, the monks wearing saffron robes come right down the sidewalk in Ukiah with their alms bowls. The very same monks I followed in Thailand are in Redwood Valley at, Amra, at Abayagiri Forest Monastery. And they go into, they drive into Ukiah and go on alms rounds with their bowls. And the first couple times they said it was pretty slim pickings. There wasn't much. But they, they're not there to get stuff. They're there to make themselves available should people choose to practice generosity. So after about the second time, my goodness, these there were people waiting and they would come, you know, they'd come by and say, Good morning, good morning. Uh, do you take uh, uh, do you take donuts? You know <laughs> go run over to to uh, you know Krispy Kreme and come back and how many are you? Uh, oh, I, I have two for each. Uh, would you like the chocolate eclair or would you like, you know, whatever it makes you happy to offer as we're happy to accept as long as it doesn't break the precept. Oh, okay, well, here you go. Uh, see, will you be back next week? Yeah, see you next week, you know. And it's, that's the way it goes. And people, are American, Californian folks were delighted to make offerings. Now, the Ajahn Amaro told me that um, after the word got out that they were on alms rounds, they were greeted by people waiting on the side of the road and most of the people who were making offerings came from the city of 10,000 Buddhas. <laughs> they had cooked and gotten ready to plant blessings. So it's like, why don't they make offerings to their own Sangha? You know, well, their answer would be, why don't you go on alms rounds? Good question. My feeling is that if I got a bigger bowl, and I do have a Theravada, I have a Thai monk's bowl, and I walked down McKinley Avenue at the same time every day, my guess is in about two weeks, people would start to, start to make offerings. You know, I, I am pretty sure that that would happen. The only difficulty is that you take what you get. And I would have to have like a handout that said, no meat, <laughs> no chicken, no fish, no cigarettes, no alcohol, no dairy, no onions, garlic, shallots, leeks, chives, forget it. <laughs> Apples, <laughs> carrots. No, and suppose, imagine, imagine the difficulty if I showed up on Tuesday afternoon over at the farmer's market or on Saturday morning. Man, if you walk down the farmer's market on a Saturday morning, you'd need a Winnebago, you know? <laughs> People would, I'm sure, would be so generous that you'd need to, to 
uh, respond. So there are things we're thinking of. But in general, as the Dharma comes to the West, I think we can't go wrong by looking carefully with wisdom at what the Buddha set up and bringing it to the West. What an interesting idea to give people in Berkeley, California, in Santa Clara, in Walnut Creek, a chance to practice generosity. So we're thinking about that. For the sake of these living beings, says the Bodhisattva, I will practice generosity in every form. I will give up my throne, my jewels and treasures, my elephants, horses and cars, head, eyes, hands and feet, body, blood and flesh. I can renounce everything. What is this? The Bodhisattva is speaking in the first person. I, me, I can do these things, he says, she says. And notice, elephants, so throne, jewels, treasures, elephants, horses and cars, who has those things? Obviously a king or a ruler or an emperor. So the sutra is giving us an image of somebody who has stuff to give away, first of all. Things that most of us would find really hard to part with. A throne? Yeah. If you're a king, it's hard to step down. Jewels and treasures? Yeah. Who's got those? Well, do you have a wristwatch? Do you have earrings, cufflinks? Do you have credit cards? Do you have treasury bonds? Do you have a diversified portfolio? Right? Do you have a PayPal account? So, oop, somebody does. So I can give up things that are hard to give up. Do you have an iPad? Is it a 3G iPad? Is it a Wi-Fi iPad? So whatever the Bodhisattva is able to give up things that are hard to give up. The image in the sutra is the, the finest things that... Um, you could imagine in a social context. Kings have this kind of stuff. Elephants, horses, and cars are conveyances of the time the sutra was spoken. Now it would be, right, SUVs, sports cars, vans. Mm, probably it would be Priuses, right? It would be hybrid and motorcycles, conveyances. Maybe a Learjet or something of the sort. In other words, something really valuable that's a conveyance. Just translate it forward. So, I can give up things that most people can't stand to give up. External objects. Okay, the next step into it is a little startling. The Bodhisattva says, I can give up internal stuff. Head, eyes, hands and feet. Body, blood and flesh. So, the immediate disclaimer is, Kids, don't try this at home, right? Don't take it as literal and say, oh yeah, bodhisattvas do it. I'm a bodhisattva, I can do it too. What do you want? I'm ready, give me a piece, right? Not. Um, the bodhisattva in the sutra is not speaking metaphorically. Don't get that wrong. He, she could definitely do that. And there are stories about um, people in fact being, uh, meeting a situation where what's needed is an I, for example. Now, what do we have? We have organ donors. Does your driver's license have that dot on the back? 
Are you an organ donor? Well, precisely what's being talked about here. Um, mostly that's after death, given the right conditions, where you say, I will give up a liver or a heart if needed, and it's appropriate, but people give up kidneys and still while still alive. Um, so it's not all that far-fetched. The Bodhisattva is saying something very similar, that I am so devoted to generosity, I'm so willing to give that I don't hang on to anything, to no possession, including the things that are hardest to give up, which is our bodies. Right? Who wants to, to live without head, eyes, hands, feet, body, blood, and flesh? Nobody. But the, the, the Bodhisattva is saying, even to that extent, I'm happiest when I'm... Here's, here's the idea behind it. The thinking behind it is, a Bodhisattva has made vows to say, I'm here in service to living beings. My job is to end suffering for others. Because I have made a vow that I will do whatever it takes to, the phrase, cross living beings over, to get people out of suffering. What does it take? What do you need? If you need it and I have it, it's yours. I'm going to make it available. And the interesting thing, this is called the ground of happiness, right? The stage of happiness. The people I know who you could say are happiest, in my experience, are people who lead lives of service. People who actually do give of themselves. Not necessarily a finger or a foot or an eyeball, but who give blood, breath, attention, focus, time, selflessly to others are the happiest people I know. Think of who. Mm, I did a pilgrimage at one point in my formation as a monk and I was outdoors for nearly three years. Didn't go indoors for nearly three years. Stayed on the coast of California, Highway 1, traveling from South Pasadena to Ukiah. And during that time, I was silent. I didn't talk, but the person I was with did talk. And so I was witness to many, many, many conversations about the kind of things that people talk about when they meet pilgrims. So here are two Buddhist monks on the side of the road, bowing, going so slowly, going a mile a day up the California Highway, the PCH, Pacific Coast Highway. Now, when you see somebody like that, often people were moved to reflect. When you come up and, come up and talk to a Buddhist monk who's strange looking and who's bowing by the road, usually people talk about inner stuff. They don't talk about the weather or stocks or sports. So we got an opportunity to hear lots of people's stories, lots and lots of inner reflections about, yeah, you know, it kind of makes you wonder what's really important. People would say that a lot. 
And often, people we had two distinct kinds of people who would be reflective. One kind would be people who were really upset. Things just weren't working. And for every reason under the sun, from cheating partners to being out of work to being angry and not knowing how to get a handle on it to just contemplating suicide. All kinds of sad stories came up. And people who came out because of happiness, because of joy, wanting to share something, wanting to know what they could do, or just wanting to experience what it's like to bow on the highway uh, with Buddhist monks. Generally, there were those that division. And the people who we met who were the unhappiest were people mostly... We, I compared notes with Marty. We kept journals, and this was something that we both recognized. The people who seemed to be the most afflicted were people who were grabbing for all the gusto they could get and having it not work out, having it not deliver what they expected. People who were in competitive lifestyles, struggling to make the final killing, waiting for their ship to come in, wanting to get ahead, wanting to be the best. Those are folks who, by and large, had stories that went like this. Sometimes good, sometimes really bad. The people who had, in general, this kind of constant energy of satisfaction, joy, energy, delight, were people whose lives were given in service. We met lots of teachers. We met lots of, interestingly enough, paramedics. People who would pull our ambulance over just to chat. Firemen. We made friends with firemen up and down the coast who resonated with the idea of bowing for world peace. Um, We met uh, caregivers, nurses, doctors, people whose lives were given not in competition, who gave their time not to be the best or to be number one or to get ahead, but who, whose lives were given in picking up pieces for others, in cleaning up the messes, in extracting people from disasters. Those were the folks who, by and large, had a different vibe. And the vibe was steady and it was open, ready to experience whatever we could show them as Buddhist monks. Interesting, huh? The givers were the happy people. And you could almost tell before the person spoke what, what they did after a while because it was a constant. It definitely was a, a paradigm that we discovered. People who came out to share their stories, if they were lit up, usually they were in a service profession. Um, if they were down and dark, Usually it was because they were competing and had lost. 
Or worse, they were competing and they won and it didn't pay off. They got it and it wasn't what it promised. Didn't hit the spot. That's sad. Because if you buy the marketplace hype only to discover in the next product cycle the one you got isn't the one anymore, that's a big awakening. That's a loss of innocence. And somebody would say, well, duh, what do you expect? That's advertising, dude. You go, yeah, but they told me that I was going to be happy with this one. This was it. I was going to be just like the billboard. I got this one. Well, that's last time. The wheels of industry must turn. You know. So this loss of innocence in the marketplace. So that was, that was an amazing kind of kitchen rule of thumb that we found is people in service positions, people whose lives are devoted to giving, tend to be happy-hearted folks. So, so the Bodhisattva puts that into their creed. Bodhisattvas build their lives around those vows. That giving is the first step towards cultivation of the spiritual path. Um, there are, depending on if you're doing the six or the ten, there are five more steps to the Bodhisattva path or nine more. Six paramitas, ten paramitas. The Bodhisattva begins with giving every single time. Because what it does is it takes you out of that idea, the, the form that every aspect of life is here to serve me. The Buddha's awakening was that the me is an illusory me. And it's the source of all the pain and misery. The dukkha comes from eternally serving the me only to discover that that me is a very amorphous, illusory, fast-moving, slippery projection. Who am I? Not who I was and not who I'm going to be. And when every action, word, and breath is there to serve this me in the middle and that me is always changing, that's a setup for dissatisfaction. So giving is the first step to kind of loosening the boundaries of that. Yeah, it's a good thing. I'm giving it to you because it's good. Not because I don't want it anymore. Or because it's the crummy one. Right? It's the best. And that's why I want to share it. So there'll be two people who get the best. Or more. What a different... Just in that single thought, there's joy. Right? So the Chinese have a, an idiom that goes... Benefiting others is the foundation of happiness. There's real wisdom there. Although that's a, that's a kind of a, a social idiom. It's not a Buddha Dharma principle, but it could be. That happiness comes from benefiting others. There's real seeing, clear seeing in that. Here's the Bodhisattva saying, I'll give, I'll practice generosity in every form. All right. What forms of generosity are there? We talked about making offerings to monks, supporting the spiritual lifestyle of people who are out of the marketplace, who are not going to be working hard 
to sustain their lives or their loved ones. And that's, that's risky. You're trusting another's generosity to do that. So that makes possible this kind of giving. For the monks and nuns who are receiving the generosity, they live a life of gratitude, gratefulness. For the donors, they see it as a chance to create blessings. Happiness in the future comes from supporting others who are leading a spiritual life. Okay, that's offering, making an offering. Giving that goes between equals is just giving. I have something, I'll share it with you. You're pretty much the same status. You're not a monastic or a holy person. You're not the Buddha. And so there's giving over. There is charity, which kind of is a, a sense of, I have and you're in need. So I will supply your need. That's a kind of a charity uh, giving. A, a kind of a um, rescue, you know, I'm giving water pumps, water filters, blankets and tents to people who experience an earthquake and rains. So there's a kind of a, a charity giving that is to f- fulfill a need, to satisfy a need. Then what else is there? There's also, it mentioned here, renunciation. Letting go, letting go of, learning to do without. It's not that you're necessarily giving to somebody who you're not offering to someone superior, i.e. the Buddha. You're not uh, handing over to an equal, sharing. You're not sharing with an equal. You're not giving charity to someone who is in need. You are giving up, letting go, another kind of giving. Here the Chinese word is she. And it's the idea of finding out how much you need. Monks and nuns lead lives of renunciation. And this is interesting because it's not what you think. If somebody had told me um, when I was even 23, because I became a monk at age 24, if somebody had told me at age 23 that I would be living without possessions, without anything other than a few robes, without a house, without um, bank accounts, without credit cards, etc., I would have doubted seriously that that's saying it mildly I would have said you're nuts who in the world would want to do that and on the face of it doing without material things seems bitter seems who would want to do that how do you get along you think about the things I mean I have a wristwatch the Theravada monks don't wear wristwatches they don't have any kind of jewelry whatsoever. Um, their timepieces, they carry maybe a timepiece, but it's a, a watch without a strap that they tuck into their belt. Um, the people who I've met who have lived 
the life of a renunciate tend to be very happy souls. To the point where it puts a serious doubt in the equation that stuff makes you happy. It's the exact opposite of the marketplace. Right? The marketplace lives by the, the assumption that the happiest person has the most stuff or the best stuff. You know the phrase, he or she who dies with the most toys is the winner. Right? He who dies with the most toys wins. That's what the world would tell you. My experience is not necessarily true. Stuff is nice. Nice stuff is nice. But there's definitely a correlation beyond which stuff becomes oppressive. There's a, a wonderful sociological treatise called The Rise of Happiness in Capitalist Societies. It's, uh, I, have, uh, I don't have the citation with me right this minute, but if anybody's curious, I'll be happy to pass it on. The fellow is a scholar from Yale, and they observed um, not just 20th century societies, but societies back in the 19th century where they could still get records. What they discovered was if you look at someone's income and wealth, right, their jewels and treasures, elephants, horses, and cars, and you can measure it. You say this person's salary increased, their uh, bank accounts increased. If you can get that data and mark it and then find a way to measure that person's happiness, you ask them and they report it. Are you happy now? Are you happy now? What they discovered is happiness and material stuff go hand in hand. They rise together on a graph to a certain point. The happiness beyond that level levels out and the wealth goes up. Even sometimes the happiness dips. It's not the case that this is statistically, they've, they've got the model now. They say it's not the case that happiness and wealth keep pace forever. The happiness goes like that and then can drop as the wealth goes up. They've also found that there is a point, certainly, where without stuff, you can be miserable. If you are hungry and cold, and they say more important in terms of suffering, cold is the hardest one. Mind you, if, you're not, if you don't have water, you'll die. Water you need sooner than food. You can go without food longer than you can go without water. Water is absolutely a necessity for the body. Soon. But they, if those basics are covered, they've said that cold is the number one. That if you're really cold, nothing else matters except getting warm. There's a point where that is a major indicator of suffering. Let's say you do have a full stomach, you're warm, and you're, you have water to drink. They say that, the survey went on to say that you can be very, very happy without material acquisition. There is a point, and I think it leveled off. Of course, it, it adjusts and fluctuates, but I think in Western society, in contemporary society, the happiness 
stopped keeping pace with the income around $40,000. So that may have been back in 1990 when the survey was done. Maybe now it's 60000 or something. But beyond that, the survey said once it gets over, once it gets into six figures, 100000 plus, there is no discernible correlation to more happiness. In fact, many wealthy people who I've talked to um, will tell you that the lawyers, the accountants, the security that you need to keep big wealth really eats the happiness up. That seeking and getting can also be suffering past a certain point. You think seeking and not getting, cho ar buddha, right? Seeking and not getting is suffering, one of the eight sufferings. Seeking and getting, cho ar da, in fact, strangely enough, to people's surprise, is also a source of unhappiness at a certain point. So, the, the notion that we got to keep consuming may have a lot to do with a sense of dissatisfaction and alienation in our contemporary marketplace society, particularly the global marketplace. You think when we export American culture, doesn't everybody want two color TVs with a flat panel display? Not for sure. Once the TV comes, what happened? The kids leave the village, heading for the lights of the city. The old people are lonely. Once you get married and go off in your own apartment, because you've seen that's what you're supposed to do, get your own place, grandma's not there to take care of the kids when you want to work. The kid is lonely. The kid becomes latchkey. The kid gets, you know. So these are all major issues that we haven't asked ourselves using happiness as the index. So, okay, that's another kind of... of correlation between giving and happiness. And the, the point, the, the, the message is that here's the Bodhisattva who is doing what a culture would say is what he's a loser. She's a loser. Giving everything away. Nothing. The people who I've met who really look straight in the face of the question, how much is need? How much is greed? tend to be very happy people because the happiness is not based on stuff. Stuff comes and goes. Once there's past satisfying the needs, there's always more or less. But if you only place your happiness on the stuff and don't seek within, particularly to connect it to giving, which is the source of joy, then no amount of stuff it's going to hit that spot. On the other hand, if you have enough and you give, you found a source of joy that is independent of acquisition, independent of stuff. Okay, that's the idea. The Bodhisattva says, I can renounce everything and the mind has no worries or regrets. Tough. You know anybody, have you ever been in a situation where that was true? That happiness came from giving instead of getting? 
You have to turn it around. Turn around the whole ethos of consumption. It's un-American to think that way. Isn't it? It's so dangerous. That's what made our country great, was buying, 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 buying. What if we decide, in fact, we got everything we need? Man. But here's the Bodhisattva saying, I can let everything go. This is the practice of happiness. Okay, just for reflection. Interesting. Any ideas? Strike any... Any... Stories or memories, please feel free to share. Let's, let's look down while that one's digesting. The idea of giving as the source of happiness. Let's look down at the next one. Seeking all the many sutra texts, their minds are never weary or fatigued. They skillfully comprehend their teachings and can adapt them to the ways of the world. Seeking all the many sutra texts, their minds are never weary or fatigued. They skillfully comprehend their teachings and can adapt them to the ways of the world. Okay, this verse is aimed right at the sutras. Um, check the bookcase back here to your left. There's a hundred volumes of the Buddha's sutra texts. Over here to your right, 150 volumes. This is the the canon, C-A-N-O-N, called the Tripitaka, the Three Baskets. This is the supplementary canon, supplementary Tripitaka. The Three Baskets are Sutras, Shastras, and Vinaya. Sutras are words attributed to the Buddha, words that they actually say the Buddha did speak. There are 1,300 separate texts that have the word sutra in them. Shastras are commentaries that later individuals made about the Buddha's words. So maybe the sutra, for example, the Avatamsaka, the flower adornment, in the three baskets, in the, in the sutra basket, there are three different versions of the Avatamsaka. And there are other shorter versions that chunks of it that came together. But there are three distinct separate texts called the Avatamsaka Sutra. And in the commentary basket, the Shastra Pitaka, there are mm, dozens of commentaries, some three times as long as the Sutra, where people are making commentary, like I'm doing tonight. Um, the Vinaya is the, the texts that have to do with the organization of the Buddha's community. So, how to make monks and nuns, how to um, set up the Sangha, 
how to go on offering alms rounds, how to deal with medicines, clothing, robes, etc. So, three baskets. Those are the, the, uh, the Buddhist literature. And it's interesting because it's an open canon. It's not closed. It's not done. In the biblical literature, the idea that we're going to find another gospel is challenging, right? The various councils from the time of, of uh, Jesus and on through the, uh, the biblical history of the, the reasons why emperors would call groups together or scholars would want to correlate the, the Latin with the Greek with the Aramaic versions of the Bible. That created what we now know as the Old and New Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Gospels. It's not impossible to think that another, like the Essene Gospels might appear, but the scholarship has been so intense on those specific books that the idea of another Moses coming down with tablets is far-fetched. In the Buddha's literature, it's a very different setup. They don't come from revelation. It's not that God speaks to a prophet who then delivers the texts to humanity. The idea is the Buddha was a person whose wisdom opened up so that he saw the principles of, quote, the nature, of the Dharma nature. And he reported what his wisdom revealed to him in any given situation. The sutras are the words the Buddha spoke in all those situations from his wisdom. If you open wisdom, if you cultivate till your wisdom is functioning, you can contribute a sutra to the Tripitaka. It's an open canon. It's not done. Because it's a process that doesn't depend upon revelation from a deity, from a non-human source. It's a very human process. So if your wisdom is the same as the Buddha's, you're qualified to speak a sutra. The sixth patriarch was a monk in the Tang dynasty in the 8th century. His scripture is included in the Tripitaka, even though he was not historically the Buddha. His wisdom was acknowledged as the same. Interesting difference for people who are interested in theology. What is it about a closed canon and an open canon? A, A text given by revelation or a text given by realization. Different, different way to look at it. So, the sutra texts all came from the Buddha running into a situation where he said, Ah, monks, here's what you need to do should you seek wisdom. Here's how compassion works in this case, said the Buddha. And all those texts arose from that. Um, 
there are said to be five different periods that the Buddha spoke sutras during. And I'm about to sneeze here. (coughs) And roughly, there's the Agama period. And the Buddha talked about cause and effect. Uhanshu in Chinese. He talked, uh, people know the Dhammapada. We had a monk today at lunch, a Swami from the Vedanta tradition. He's from the Ramakrishna mission. He's a Vedanta monk. Very nice uh, monk who's been in robes for years. And he was talking about in the Swami, in the monks of the Ramakrishna mission, every year they celebrate the Buddha's birthday. And they have a praise of the Buddha. He sang it today in Sanskrit at lunch. It was very nice. And uh, he likes the Dhammapada. He said the Dhammapada sounds very much like the Bhagavad Gita and like other texts in the Vedas. So, during the Agama period, the Buddha spoke the sutras that were very clear. Not to say simple, but they were for people whose minds were just opening to principle. He talks about um, oxen. He talks about arrows. He talks about wives and husbands. He talks about children. He talks about snakes, cause and effect, being wise, being just, being true, being not foolish, things like this. These are the the teachings from the Agamas period. They're very easily graspable, easily easily digested. The um, next period of the Buddha's teaching was called the... um, Actually, if you've taken notes, I've already led you astray. The Agamas was number two. The first period was, in fact, the Avatamsaka. I haven't run these. I'm pulling it out of my brain. I haven't done this for a while. The uh, first period is called the Avatamsaka period, the flower adornment. That's our sutra. The Buddha was under the Bodhi tree and just spoke it, what he saw with his newly awakened wisdom eyes. They call it raw milk right from the cow. So the Buddha just talked about it as he saw it, not aiming it at people. Instead, he spoke for bodhisattvas. Second period is the Agamas, spoken distinctly for ordinary folks who were starting to think about meditation, starting to think about changing their lifestyle towards the Buddha's teaching. The third period is called the expansive period, Fangdang. The Sanskrit word is the um, Vipulya. It's a connecting period between the Agamas and what follows. So it's a connecting period. And there are sutras that we have that are part of the Vipulya period, like the Urstor Bodhisattva Sutra, spoken then, the uh, Sutra of Many Jewels is spoken at that time, big, big sutras. The fourth period is Prajna. The Prajna period took 21 years of the Buddha's teaching time. And it was a time when people were already meditating. 
their minds were open to emptiness for the first time. So we have or and the fourth one is called the In the Prajna period, the Buddha talked about one particular insight, which was emptiness. And it's so distinctive and so different from what was available in India at the time that it became connected to all of Buddhism. People talk about Buddhism as, in China, Kong Man, the gate of emptiness. The idea that the Buddha says, O Shariputra, form is not different than emptiness. Emptiness is not different than form. Form itself is emptiness. Emptiness itself is form. So too are feeling, cognition, formations, and consciousness. That's what? That's the Heart Sutra. The heart of Prajna Paramita. The Prajna period has tiny sutras. They say this, the one syllable, ah, contains all of Prajna. Did you all get that? Did you hear it all? Ah. Did it sound empty to you? No. So there's that. There's the Heart Sutra. There's the Diamond Sutra. There's the mm, Compassionate King Who Protects the Country, Prajna Paramita Sutra. There is the 8,000-line Prajnaparamita, the 50,000-line Prajnaparamita, and the 500,000-line Prajnaparamita. There are many volumes of our Tripitaka, which are one sutra, the Maha Prajnaparamita Sutra. And even though it's long, the great Prajnaparamita Sutra, it's still explaining emptiness. One particular Dharma doing. Okay, that's number four. The fifth period of the Buddha's teaching is called the Lotus Nirvana period. And in that period, the Buddha spoke only a few sutras. It was the end of his life. And the Lotus was the, um, the biggest departure from everything the Buddha had spoken. Avatamsaka for bodhisattvas, the Agamas for folks on the ground, the expansive connecting teachings, the prajna teachings for advanced meditators who were ready for emptiness. Their experience had already taken them through the notion that these things are permanent. And then finally, the lotus nirvana period where the Buddha said, um, everybody will become a Buddha. The lotus sutra was so out there, so revolutionary, that when the Buddha first spoke the Lotus Sutra at the end of his teaching career, they said that 500 arhats stood up and walked out of his assembly because they said, wait, 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 you've been telling us that we have to follow the precepts, that we have to be vegetarian, that we have to understand cause and effect, that we have to cultivate in greed, hatred, and stupidity and cultivate precepts, samadhi, and wisdom. And now you're saying that all you have to do is say Namo Buddha and you're going to become a Buddha? You cheated us, they said. And seriously, this is historically what happened. 500 of the Buddha's disciples left when he said, he opened it up really wide and said, in fact, I had to train you step by step because you weren't ready 
for that. If I'd said it at that point, you would have said, oh, fine, who cares? We'll go off and, and go to Reno and gamble and figure that we're going to become Buddhas in the end, so it doesn't matter, right? So the Buddha said, no, you needed that foundation. So he, and then there were others who said, what a wonderful, compassionate, universal teaching. So the Lotus Sutra is the t- sutra that says all beings become Buddhas. All you need do, it says, is raise your hand in a salute, do a half bow, say a single sentence of Namo Buddha, praise the Buddha. And your, that's enough of a seed to bring your nature to fullness over time. Why? Because the nature is that sensitive to goodness. Our Buddha nature is really ready to receive any wholesome seeds. So it's a matter of time. Of course, if you cultivate every day and you meditate, you do cultivate precepts, concentration, and wisdom and put an end to greed, hatred, and stupidity, you can become a Buddha quickly. So don't wait. And then in the Nirvana Sutra, that was the last sutra the Buddha spoke. So the... um, that's the fifth period. So, Avatamsaka, Agamas, expansive period, Prajna, the wisdom period, and then the Lotus Nirvana. Those are the five sutra texts. Their minds are never weary or fatigued. They pursue those texts. They study them. They copy them out by hand. They type them. They put them online. They make PDFs and distribute them. They uh, memorize them. They translate them. They put them on YouTube. They put them to guitar and banjo music. All the different things you can do to adapt sutras to the ways of the world. We're in a time right now when uh, we're translating. You know, these sutras have never been in the languages of the West to this point. So to have this, just to have this book in your hand is really quite amazing. Um, the fact that it's available in not only Hanzi, in Chinese characters, but also in the romanization, ABCD, and then in English. That's astounding. And I know there are people who are reading it in Vietnamese as well. So this is um, a very fertile time for us. And it's, we're following Master Xuanhua, our teacher, who said, um, I don't have the language skills, but I'm depending on you young people to bring your skills forward so that we can make the Buddha Dharma flourish in the West. So that's, we're following his vows. Seeking the many sutra texts, their minds never weary or fatigued. They skillfully comprehend their teachings and can adapt them to the ways of the world. Um, What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for somebody who is an illustrator. If I can find somebody who's got good manga and anime skills. Anybody in the back who that would describe? Um, I'm hoping to create illustrated Buddha Dharma comics and stories. The, um, I think good illustration is a perfect medium for, for this Avatamsaka in particular because it's worlds within worlds, interpenetrating without obstruction. Um, I think our Three Steps, One Bow pilgrimage would do really well in a comic book as well so that's what I'm looking for if you know anybody like that uh, I'll give you my email address uh, a, a manga Kevin 
I've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. What do you think? You like it? Yeah. It's, it's not bad. There's many volumes, actually. Yeah. It's a Japanese uh, illustrator. Yes, yes. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. Pardon? It's, what is the word manga? Okay, manga is the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese word manhua, which means cartoon. Yeah, manga are Japanese comic books that they've carried that art to such a level they, they've become, in the last 40 years, so much a part of Japanese culture that the government issues all of their, like, how to uh, apply for government positions in manga form. <laughs> they're, they're beautifully done. And anime is when those become animated. So it's cartoons, not comics, but cartoons. So manga and anime. Let me get um, our guitar and we can transfer the merit and... Then I want you to meet somebody. is in the process of having a liver transplant, Bhikshu Hung Sho, and he's being held together by modern medical science, miracles, medical science. Um, one of our nuns in Taiwan uh, suffered a serious fall at Mi Tuo Si in Hualien, and she is, she is in intensive care, and one of our other senior nuns is in her 80s and is experiencing serious bad health. But um, everybody at the city of 10,000 Buddhas bowing their repentance has been transferring with might and main. So people feel very much a connection between the... the generosity of the people who are transferring merit and the folks who's... whose health is in, at risk right now. Um, the pictures coming from the gulf of the water birds, the pelicans, and the, porp, the dolphins um, covered with oil and dead are genuinely heartbreaking. Um, how much the more the people. So I think uh, spiritual energy is what's needed right now. So let's dedicate merit with that wish.
Hello. Hello. What's your name? Raul. 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 I'm a coyote, but I'm a urban coyote. You're an urban coyote. Uh huh. Mm, what's what does that mean? Well, I uh. I did a double major at state. I did uh, animal husbandry and uh, folklore. Folklore, yeah. Mm. I learned uh, the ways of coyotes, and uh, we've learned to adapt. Learned to adapt, and actually, uh, I think it's a lesson you humans need to learn. Uh huh. What do you mean? Well, you see. Uh, you're not the easiest group to get along with. You put up the fences, build the highways, freeways, put out poison, drill holes in the earth. The earth bleeds. All that oil, that's the bleeding earth, you know. You don't leave much for the rest of us. So we decided that uh, instead of fighting, we just adapt. So I decided to enroll uh, and... Uh, I'm, I graduated last week, double major, and uh, furthermore, I'm a legal aide, and we decided we're going to take a class action lawsuit against uh, human beings. You, have, uh, you just leave a mess everywhere. Uh, so we're going to try to get a restraining order on your appetite for oil. Uh, the earth is bleeding. So uh, I'll see you all next week, and you're all plaintiffs in a lawsuit. When the uh, bailiff comes, uh, we'll see you in court. Bye.
<laughs> so that's Raul, the, uh, the college graduate from San Francisco State. So. Actually, San Jose State. So we, Amer- we humans need to learn to adapt, he says. I think he's probably right. You'll hear more from him later. Okay, um, let's see. I brought for you something I'd like to pass out. People want to know what to do. Kevin, would you mind? Kai? People want to know what to do um, with the disasters. There seems to be no end to them. And they're touching so many of us. The, um, the oil, they say, could easily go to Florida. Has reached Florida already? White Sands of Florida. Well, it's real at that point. It's going to affect us at the gas pump because we're... I drive and I, my car burns gas. Um, we may not recover from this one. So what do we do? Um, the Buddha's answer was, look within. Um, if, if folks, could, could we share two with one? We don't have enough. If you could share with a neighbor, we can take some upstairs, make sure people get... Turn to page two. Turn to page two. It's down at the bottom of the first column. Samantabhadra, the repentance verse. This is our own sutra, the Avatamsaka Sutra, saying that um, there are words that arise from wisdom. And if we can find words to unlock our connection to to group behavior, group behavior can change. Some people say, well, what do I do? I'm just, you know, just one person. In fact, um, there has always only been that one person. Groups come from people's permissions. If there weren't individuals, there would never be a group. And so, when one person's behavior changes, the group changes. And the Buddha's answer was to understand. Understand um, body, mouth, and mind as the vehicles of behavior and then look at the thoughts in the mind that motivate body, mouth, and mind. And if those thoughts accord with wisdom, every action, every word, and every deed, every thought benefits. Benefits not just self, but everyone. If the thoughts are full of greed, anger, and delusion, then every word, every thought, and every deed is directly harmful to self and others. So the first step is to recognize clearly my share in what happens in the planet. And here's a verse, the bottom of page two, that's aimed directly 
at that awakening. This is from the Sutra. For all the harmful things I've done With my body, speech, and mind I'm beginning Anger and stupidity Through lifetimes without number To this very day I now repent and I vow To change entirely With my body, speech, and mind From beginningless greed Anger and stupidity Through lifetimes without number To this very day I now repent and I vow to change entirely for all the harmful things I've done with my body, speech, and mind from beginningless grief Anger and stupidity Through lifetimes without number To this very day I now repent and I vow To change entirely Last line again I now repent and I vow to change entirely. Okay, so that's from the Avatamsaka Sutra. Those are the Buddha's words talking about, in fact, who's responsible. If we shake our fist at British Petroleum long enough, does anything change? Not when you turn the ignition in your car the next day. So. As we all will tomorrow. Okay, deep problem. Now, um, we have... A yard sale coming up. Is that what you thought I was going to say? A yard sale. Hey, hey. Yard sale happens on June 26th and June 27th. Is that a Saturday and Sunday? Saturday and Sunday? Yep. 
9 to 5, 9 a.m., 5 p.m., at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. That's where we are sitting right now. Here, uh, McKinley Street, we're going to be selling things, a yard sale, to help raise funds for the kitchen remodeling, which is our current project. And we're doing fine. We're, uh, people are bringing forth ideas and strength. So the, uh, our advertisement, which is going to go up, says very skillfully, it says, please donate gently used items. No garbage, right? Gently used items uh, that can be resold. Collection will be from June 24th. That's a Thursday to uh, 10 a.m. on Saturday the 26th only. Okay? I'm passing on this information and this will also be posted in the back. The idea is... um, if you have stuff that you needed to move out, maybe you've got too much stuff that you were hoping somebody would invite you to, to donate or to sell, um, this will be a chance to do it on the 26th and 27th. Um, all proceeds will go to the kitchen remodeling. There will be a silent auction on Saturday, June 26th for higher-end items. Uh, items for auction do not have to be tangible. It could be for a service or an event. Do you cook? Do you clean? Items would need to be attached to have a brief description attached and an approximate value. Another way to contribute to this fun and worthy cause is to volunteer to work at the yard sale. Sign up now and be a part of the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery yard sale team. I know there are people who really enjoy doing this. Um, and it's an opportunity. If you have more questions, contact Hong in the back. Hong, would you raise your hand? Here she is. And she has her phone number here on the flyer. So that'll be a chance to uh, come together with the community to move some stuff. All right. Um, Here's another notice. At the ITI, International Translation Institute in Burlingame, the Vajra Sutra is being lectured, is that right? Somebody, yes, okay. From 7.45 to 9 p.m., when? Friday? Friday doesn't say here. So, Friday night, 7.45 to 9 the Diamond Sutra, the Bajra Sutra, is being lectured at Burlingame. Um, if you go to Ustream, you can also find it online. Good. Okay. So the Diamond Sutra being lectured at Burlingame, ITI, International Translation Institute. That's on Murchison Drive, 1777 Murchison, right behind the uh, Burlingame Plaza Shopping Center, right next door to the... Uh, CTA, California Teachers Association, 7.45 to 9 p.m. on Fridays, and you can catch it on Ustream if you want. See it online. All right.